Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. What is this new program from the FDA called the Safer Technologies Program, or STEP? It's kind of interesting. It's kind of exciting, and uh, would encourage you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences goes into some depth and detail on what this STEP program is all about and how it might be applicable to your design and development efforts. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And, you know, it's getting late in the year of 2019. There's continues to be news coming from, you know, different regulatory agencies, including FDA. And it seems like there's been a flurry of new guidance documents and programs that have been coming out recently. And, you know, there's one that came out recently called the Safer Technologies Program for Medical Device. And thought it would be a good opportunity to get Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences on the podcast to talk about the new uh, STEP program. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. And always a thrill to talk about these things and to, to uncover what's new and, and maybe talk about what, what's being repackaged a little bit. And, and uh, you know, I've had a chance to read through this. And, you know, as always, a good place to start might be... What is the Safer Technologies Program? And I, I think FDA is using the acronym STEP on this too, right? That's correct. The Safer Technology Program, or STEP, is, uh, I would categorize, one of the very small numbers of truly new programs. In other words, it's not just simply a, a repackaging of something that's you know been around for a long time. And basically, the intention of this program, according to the guidance that was just literally weeks re- released a couple of weeks ago, is it applies to medical devices and also uh, device-led combination products. In other words, a combination product where the primary mode of action is a device. So devices and these kinds of combo products that are reasonably expected to significantly improve the safety of a currently available treatment or diagnostic. Let me just repeat that because that's an important point. To significantly improve the safety of a currently available treatment or diagnostic that targets an underlining disease or condition associated with morbidities and mortalities that's less severe than those eligible for the Breakthrough Designation Program, or BDP. So there's a lot of words in there, John. Let's start to to, to peel back that onion a little bit. So the focus here is more... I just want to clarify, Mike. You mentioned BDP, Breakthrough Device Program. That that might be a good area to dive into as well. I, I suspect you're probably getting ready to do that, but I just wanted to clarify the BDP for folks Yeah, fair enough. So the PDP is also a relatively new program, although there, and you and I have talked about this in other podcasts, John, and I did a webinar for Greenlight on the BDP as well. But the BDP is really not new. It's been around for a couple of years. And before that, it was, there were precursors to other programs. That's why I said a moment ago that the Safer Technologies Program or STEP truly is new because there was no program like this that focused more on safety, improving safety. The BDP and similar programs, the emphasis, and we can talk about this more in a moment, John, but the emphasis is more on the efficacy side, especially 
for devices that are indicated for more serious diseases, injuries, and conditions. So that's one of the important points of differentiation between the STEP and the BDP. And that is the STEP is we already have devices out there already, but our new device maybe has the potential to make this particular type of device or procedure safer. I have a couple of possible examples that I can share, but you know we'll get into that as we as we continue our discussion. Okay, so uh, probably the big question that that folks may be thinking of now that they know a little bit more about this safer technologies program is uh, how do I apply, or maybe why should I apply? What, what's what's the big what's in it for me? What's the big idea, right? So a couple things for the audience to keep in mind, John, and that is neither the step nor the BDP is a pathway to market. I can't tell you how many people come up to me and they 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 either ask or they say that I want to do a BDP instead of a 510K or instead of a PMA or de novo or something like that. Neither the BDP nor the nor the step is a pathway to market. Instead, you should view these as a um, as, as as complementary. The step is complementary to the BDP. And by the way, you cannot have both. Your device is either qualifies for the step or the BDP. If you have BDP designation, for example, you cannot apply for step designation or vice versa. So it's one or the other. And so the comparison between the two before we get into the mechanics is, as I said, the step program is primarily intended for devices that are ineligible for BDP, but they do offer a significant advantage in terms of treating or diagnosing a less serious disease or condition that can also provide important public health benefits and so on. So somebody asked me recently, uh, do we need both a STEP and a BDP program? In my opinion, no. There's a tremendous amount of, of redundancy between the two. If the BDP, let me say it this way, the BDP and the STEP could easily be merged together. Yeah. But Maybe uh, real quick, John, before we talk about the mechanics of the program, how do you apply in the steps, maybe we should go into a little more detail about the eligibility of the program so that our audience can understand whether or not their particular device is eligible for step designation. Yeah, let me just uh, clarify maybe a point of confusion or an aha, I guess, depends on how you respond to what I'm about to say. So uh, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't always a square. So Using that analogy, <laughs> BDP fits within the, the confines of STEP, but not all steps are BDPs, or did I have that backwards? Well, actually, John, I love the square rectangle metaphor. I've never heard that before, and I'm going to have to use it my first myself in the future. I'll give you credit, of course, but I don't think it applies here. In other words, the STEP and the BDP are separate and distinct animals, and FDA, as I said, does make it quite clear in the uh, STEP guidance that just came out that if you get BDP designation, you're not eligible for STEP or vice okay. versa. All right. But, you, but your other uh, comment about you know, your, I guess, editorial opinion is that there's not a need for both. So which, in your opinion, if, if you're free or willing to share that opinion, which do you think is the better option and why? Well, okay, so good question. Let me clarify. I didn't mean to apply, imply, and I'm sorry for the confusion because I probably didn't say it very well. I didn't mean to imply that we don't have a need for both. 
I think there's clearly a need for incentives for company companies to develop safer devices, and at the same time, there's incentive. We need incentives for companies to uh, uh, develop more effective devices. I just don't think that we need two complete, completely separate and distinct programs, two completely gotcha. separate and distinct guidances. I think it could all be sort of packaged within one box. Thank you for clarifying. So I'm less confused now. All right. So now, yeah, let's dive into the uh, criteria for step eligibility. So there's a couple of criteria according to the guidance. The first is FDA says the device should not be eligible to for the BDP, as I said before, due to the less serious nature of the disease or condition that's treated, diagnosed, or prevented by the device. Now, in my not-so-humble opinion, John, that's flat-out stupid. I'm sorry to use such a, a charged word, but it is why because that create because what about in, uh, companies, for example, that are developing class three devices, PMA devices, for example, and the device is not more effective, therefore it doesn't fit the BDP, but it is safer. Well, mm. according to the way the guidance is written right now, and perhaps this will change, but I'm just going based on what's written right now, those kinds of devices would not easily fit into the to the step eligibility program. So that's criteria number one. And then criteria number two is the device should be reasonably expected to significantly improve the benefit risk profile of the treatment or the diagnostic through safety innovations that provide one or more of the following. And FDA lists four specific criteria where safety can be improved. The first is a reduction in the occurrence of known serious adverse events. So if you have similar devices already on the market with a SAE rate of, let's say, I'm going to make up a number here, John, uh, 20%, and our new device is expected to have an SAE rate of, say, 10%, I've shown a reduction in the occurrence of SAEs. Therefore, that would potentially fit the step criteria. The second one is a reduction in the occurrence of known device failures or failure modes. So if I have devices on the market uh, already that have a certain number of failure modes or a certain number of failure rates, and my new device, because of a different design and improvement in safety, has a chance of reducing the occurrence of those failures, then I can also fit the, the step eligibility. The third is a reduction in the occurrence of known user-related hazards or user errors. This is a very interesting one to me, John, and I suspect it is to you as well, because you and I have talked a lot of times over usability or human factor testing. So if you have a device that's designed to be more user-friendly, let's say, in other words, it will have likely a lower incident of user-related hazards or use errors, that would fit this, this particular program. And finally, the last one is an improvement in the safety of another device or intervention. So maybe our device itself is not necessarily safer, but when it's used in conjunction with some other device, maybe as part of a procedure, a surgical procedure, a, a, a catheter, catheterization or something like that, it improves the overall safety of another device. They don't go so far as to say improve the safety of the procedure. But if they improve the, the safety of another device, then once again, that fits into this, this criteria. So bottom line, the two big criteria, the first one, just to, to recap, for devices that are not eligible for BDP because of less serious nature of the disease, which I 
as I said earlier, I think it's flat out dumb. And then the second one is devices that are reasonably expected to improve the benefit risk profile. And we have those four subcategories, the, the frequency of known serious adverse events, the frequency of known serious device failures, the frequency of known use-related errors, and finally, an improvement in the safety of some other device or, or intervention. That's the criteria that okay. FDA has laid out. Does that make sense, John? Uh, it does. One of the things I find curious is there is no particular criteria about any sort of specific device classification per se. The little bit that I read, and maybe I'm getting uh, ahead of, of our conversation today, but the path, the regulatory path is not, it could be a few different options. It doesn't always have to be 510K or, or just de novo. I, I'm, my understanding is it could be either of those from a regulatory perspective, from a, a submission perspective. So um, any other nuances that you, that you think of that might be interesting for folks to consider above and beyond just the, the criteria for eligibility? Well, it is. You are correct, John, in the sense that the STEP program as written right now, and this is a brand new program. In fact, it hasn't even really started officially yet, but it is sort of classification agnostic. In other words, there's no mention in there directly about class one, two, or three, or regulatory pathway, 510K, de novo, PMA, HDE, you know, CDE, what have you. But indirectly there is, and this is the thing that concerns me because they specifically say that this is not for the more serious kinds of diseases or conditions like the BDP right. would be for. But on the other hand, 510K devices are eligible for the BDP. And ironically, John, just earlier today, I had a conversation with a new customer of mine who's developing a 510K device and thinks they have a reasonable chance of getting BDP designation. And so they're asking me to help them with that. And we talked a little bit about the irony and the hypocrisy, if you will, of putting 510K and BDP in the same sentence. Because, you know, as you can appreciate, John, on one hand, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a breakthrough technology, but on the other hand, it's basically the same as something that we already have. Yeah, right? so there is a, <laughs> Yeah, but again, you know, to be fair, uh, you know, uh, as, as we've talked about before, John, I am fortunate that I have several devices that have been successfully awarded BDP designation. Two of them are 510K devices. So it can be done. As I've said before, regulation is all about the interpretation of words and our ability to defend our interpretation. So I can interpret these words in many different ways. As long as I come up with an interpretation that FDA buys into, then you know we're good to go. One All other right. thing I just wanted to mention before we continue to the mechanics, John, because sure. you asked me about holes in this program, just like the BDP, the STEP program doesn't say anything about prevention of diseases, injuries, or conditions. They only talk about treatment or diagnosis. And this is a huge concern to me. And I know it's also a huge concern to some other folks in our industry, John, because the only BDP uh, device that I have been unsuccessful with is one that prevented a particular serious problem. It did not treat or diagnose the problem. It prevented it. And therefore, FDA rejected it simply based on a matter of policy. As a matter of fact, it was the policy person at FDA that 
that rejected it. All the other people on the review team, they all agreed that it was breakthrough. They all agreed that, you know, it met all of the other criteria. In fact, I even said to them, would you, would you stipulate that if we can prevent a problem from happening in the first place, then coming up with a diagnosis or a treatment for that same problem is a, is a moot point. They all agreed with me. Huh. And yet they rejected it uh, anyway on a matter of policy. And I'm sorry, John, but this is exactly what gives regulation and FDA yeah. a bad name. Because when people take such a literal interpretation of the regulation, maybe that's a topic of a different discussion. Well, and, and maybe this new uh, Safer Technologies program is now a new candidate. But we'll get to that here in a moment. Folks, I want to remind you all, I'm talking to... Mike Drews. Mike is president of Vascular Sciences. Of course, you probably have heard him on the Global Medical Device podcast a time or two before. Uh, if not, be sure to go check out other episodes of the Global Medical Device podcast. I don't know the count uh, of this episode, but it's well over 100 at this point. So that's crazy. A couple of other things that I want to remind you, I take a, a brief break in the action. Uh, Greenlight also has another podcast that we rolled out uh, this year. It's a little bit of a different twist. It's called uh, MedTech True Quality Stories. And uh, we talked to, to CEOs and, and executives at, at a lot of MedTech companies, startups, and people that are doing some really exciting things. And, and these people are sharing their true quality stories and how they've overcome quality and regulatory obstacles and challenges to, to bring new exciting products to the market. So wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, uh, be sure to to search for MedTech True Quality Stories and, and give it a listen and and share it with your friends and, and leave some comments and thumbs up and all that sort of thing. Last thing I want to mention at this point is, um, you know, you have a chance to see the great Mike Drews and John Spear in person if you're in Southern California. Uh, Mike and I had we were at the the uh, Greenlight Guru True Quality Roadshow actually just a few days ago and in Orange County. Um, we're going to be in Southern California at the next and last version of the 2019 Greenlight Guru True Quality Roadshow in San Diego on November the 7th from 5 to 8 p.m. Pacific at the ZLAC Rowing Club. You can just type in uh, True Quality Roadshow into any search engine and, and uh, navigate and click on San Diego and sign up. We'd love to have you uh, in attendance and love a chance to, to meet you and and uh, get a chance to interact with you. So um, share that with uh, all of your uh, colleagues and friends who might be in the SoCal area and uh, get to see Mike and, and John in person. But anyway, all right. So Mike, a moment ago, you talked about the um, STEP program is not in effect now. So that, I think that guidance was published, or draft guidance rather, was published, um, what was it, late September, mid-September, something like that. And when does it go into effect? So, good question, John. Uh, the, the, the program uh, is not in effect quite now. FDA said it might need uh, as much as 60 days more to implement it. I think that optimistically, I would like to see the program go into effect by Halloween or certainly by Thanksgiving at the very latest. Even, you know, the U.S. government should be able to get a program like this up and running, you know, within that period of time. But a couple of things that the audience should keep in mind between now and then. FDA has made it clear that they will not accept requests for the STEP program until the program officially starts. So I have no problem with that. That makes sense. But my advice to the companies uh, that are listening to us is there's no reason why, if you think that you have a device that meets the STEP eligibility requirements that we went through a few moments ago, there's no reason why you can't start working on it right now. In fact, I have two companies right now that uh, that we're working on STEP 
submissions, and we'll get to the mechanics of this in just a second. And I have a third company that's in the process of thinking about it. So there's no reason why as, as soon as FDA announces this program is open, the next the next day, you know, they receive your your yeah. package as, as you know as a, as a FedEx or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess translation is even though you know they're not officially accepting things uh, at this moment in time, it doesn't prevent us from from uh, working on uh, a submission to 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 qualify for this step program. So we can we can start those efforts now, um, provided we meet that criteria. All right. So I guess w- what else do you think is important about the program that maybe we haven't covered yet? Well, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics. Okay, uh, even though the program, even though the program has not gone into effect yet, it's being patterned very, very similarly to the BDP program. As a matter of fact, to use a regulatory pun, John, I would say that the mechanics for the STEP program are substantially equivalent to the mechanics for the BDP <laughs> program. Okay. And and here's what I mean by that: the STEP. Uh, process is a two-step process, exactly the same as the BDP. The first step in, 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 is to prepare a step pre-sub. And just like the BDP, the focus of the pre-sub is, 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 is very limited. It's focused like a laser. Uh, you, you only address the criteria of how our particular device or technology improves safety specifically by addressing those requirements that I just went through verbally in the first part of our uh, discussion about, you know, reducing the occurrence of known serious adverse events and so on and so on. That's the thrust of the of the step precept. Now, along with that, you obviously have to give FDA enough information about our overall device to have an intelligent conversation. So I always, just like a BDP, include an abbreviated a Reader's Digest version of the device description, along with a Reader's Digest version of the clinical uh, data plan, if you are planning on collecting clinical data or a justification why you're not going to collect clinical data if it's not necessary. Uh, something in there about the regulatory pathway, although that's not required. Something in there maybe about the testing, although very, very little, it's not required. But just like the BDP, John, the reason why I like to include these things, and again, I'm, you know, uh, all but one of my BDPs have been successful thus far, is I want to demonstrate to my FDA friends that we know what the heck we're doing and that we don't need a lot of hand-holding going through this, this process. So, so, so I like to provide them that information. That's okay. the first step. You, you, you send that all as a package, just like a, a traditional pre-sub, but it's very, very limited. You request a, a step pre-sub meeting. Within 60 days, just like the BDP, FDA intends to make a determination as to whether or not they buy your step argument. If you do, if they do, then essentially that, just like the BDP, treats you sort of as a priority. In other words, just like the BDP, a lot of people, they go back to the BDP for a second, John, a lot of people think that if I get a BDP designation, that means I have to do less testing. That means that I have to do less uh, work, you know, to get my device yeah. on the market. That's absolutely not true. Yeah. Absolutely I've, not true. I, I've heard that with people, with a few folks who are like, oh, we got this fast track option with BDP, you know, that stuff that you're talking about from a design control and risk standpoint, you know, we don't have to worry about that. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like, no, please stop. <laughs> stop it. Yes. It's, it's absolutely not, not true, John. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I don't even like to call either of these programs fast track. Instead, 
what I like to describe them, it's a more efficient way of going through the process. So in other words, here's a very simple metaphor, John. Imagine you go, you go to the grocery store and you go to the deli counter and you take a number and you're waiting your turn in line and there's a whole bunch of people standing in line with numbers. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in wearing a great big red hat and they go to the front of the line. So getting a BDP designation or getting a step designation, that's essentially like wearing a great big red hat and going to the front of the line. Now, in theory, John, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. But I can tell you from my first hand, from my real world experience, it doesn't always happen. These are new programs for the FDA. And let me tell you, the reviewers are, you know, not used to, 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 to doing that. But anyway, back to the mechanics. So the first step, as I said, of the step, exactly analogous, substantially equivalent to the BDP, you, you submit your step pre-sub. And then the second step is to follow up with the traditional pre-sub, whether you get your step designation or not. That's what FDA recommends. And the, and the traditional pre-sub can be much broader. You can talk in more detail about your, your regulatory strategy, about your clinical trial strategy, about you know everything, your, your testing matrix and so on. But as I've said with the BDP, John, and I'm saying the same thing now with STEP, that's nuts. It's led to a very inefficient process. There's no, yeah. there's no reason why we couldn't combine these two things into one. To have a BDP and traditional pre-sub, or in our case, to have a step in a traditional pre-sub. Why do I have to decouple them? I just think that it's um, uh, that it doesn't make a lot of sense, and that it's just not very efficient. Or perhaps I've made these suggestions to FDA many times. Perhaps they'll they'll streamline this process, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So that's sort of a recap of the of the mechanics of the step. And, and as I said, it's basically substantial equivalent to the BDP. Can I, I want to ask a, a question about mechanics. So you talked about it's a, a pre-sub and, and maybe it's a different twist on the quote bundling, if you will. You know, normally when I do a pre-sub, I, I'll do a, a 510K pre-sub or a de novo pre-sub or something of that nature, but this is a different type. Do I have an opportunity to, to kind of bundle the regulatory pathway as part of this as well? Or are those also decoupled from each other? You can. Let's put it this way, John, and I love your thinking on this. The regulation does not say you can, nor the re- does the regulation say you cannot do that. So you can bundle it, and I have done that before, although you have to be a little bit careful. You do have to separate things out. In other words, the focus of the step pre-sub or the focus of the BDP pre-sub is ultimately to make the step or the BDP determination. If you want to bring the regulatory pathway into it, like, for example, a 510K or something, you certainly can, but don't lose track of the conversation. In other words, if that's not directly related, and most of the time it's not, but if that's not directly related to the step determination, don't take the focus off the the step. Does that make sense? It it does. So I I guess... um... I know it's you know early days, and and uh, I know you're probably chomping at the bit to work on your first uh, step pre-sub. Well, I already am, John. I'm already oh, working on two. Nice. <laughs> so, like, what do, what do you propose as like order of operation? I mean, I mean, I guess first and foremost, I can do multiple pre-submissions for for a single device. Yes or no? You can. Sure. There's no rule right. that says you could only have that the pre-sub has to be a one-off thing. Yeah. So if, you know, and, and I know there's no absolute, I know that the typical regulatory response to this question I'm about to ask you is probably is it depends, but is there a preferred order of operation? I mean, if I think step is something that I want to pursue, should I do that pre-submission first and then later do a pre-sub on, on 510K or de novo? Or do you have any practical uh, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so good question. So just like the BDP, and again, there's a lot of similarities when it comes to the mechanics. The STEP program, you can apply for STEP status any, anywhere at any point throughout the development process. So if you want to wait until literally you know, a month before you plan on submitting your 510K or whatever it is to apply for STEP, just like the BDP, you can do that. In my opinion, you, yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't really buy you much. If, you're, if you think that you have a device that's eligible for STEP or for BDP, you should apply for that very early in the yeah. process, as early as you can, so that if you are successful, you reap all of the benefits. And then you follow up with the mm-hmm. traditional pre-sub, as I described okay. earlier, where you can get into those things that you just talked about. So all right. you can do it any way you want, John, but my preferred method is to do STEP or BDP as early as possible and then follow that up with the traditional shortly after that. I think that makes good sense. So anything else that is worth discussing on, on the Safer Technologies program today? Well, just one last uh, piece of advice based on, uh, you know, your comment about uh, or your question about adding the 510K into uh-huh. the step discussion. I think it's very, very important for the company to manage the, um, the dialogue here, not the FDA. In other words, I've seen it happen. I have a, a customer that I'm working with right now. They put in a BDP pre-sub prior to them started starting working with me. And FDA came back to them with a whole list of questions all around their technology had absolutely nothing to do with the BDP determination. And as a result, they went down a bunch of rabbit holes, uh, and this turned out to be a nightmare. So long story short, they dumped, literally, they dumped their previous regulatory uh, advisors, and they brought me in. And because one of the things that I had to say to the FDA in almost these words, I said, look, we're happy to address these technological questions about our, our particular device as soon as we're awarded BDP designation. In other yeah. words, we have to we have to you know keep control. It's kind of like uh, you know a, a person riding a horse. You know, a, a, a good experienced rider will control the horse. We don't want the horse to control the rider. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, any any last thoughts before we wrap up the episode today? Well, just for the benefit of our of our audience, something that you know people might be aware uh, might be interested in. FDA actually just um, uh, a couple of days ago did a uh, a webinar on on the step program. So you can certainly take a look at that, and uh, we can provide a link from the website to their sure. webinar. Although, just like all the other webinars that FDA does, they're about <laughs> as exciting as watching paint dry. Yeah, and uh, and I. And, and if you can read the Sorry, guidance, and if you can read the guidance, you, you might as well just read the guidance, right? Yeah, exactly. And again, this is not a criticism. FDA's job is to use my poker metaphor, John, that I've used many times. FDA's job is to tell you the rules of poker, which is exactly what they do in the webinars. FDA's job is not to tell you how to win the game. And one of the things that I enjoy about having conversations with you in the webinars that I do is we talk about how to win the game, not just the rules. So there is the, the the webinar that FDA put out just recently about the rules of the safe, uh, sorry, of the step program. Not to be confused with another webinar that they did the day after that has a very similar title, safety and performance based pathway criteria, which is the new 510k paradigm that was created about a year ago that you and I have talked about. So just wanted to mention that that there there are two very very similar sounding webinars that were recorded within a day of each other, and I have a feeling that that might be a little confusing to some people. Yeah, Mike, uh, let me just clarify that. I've got a couple of links here. I, the one says it's November, happening November 6th. And I think the other one that I 
came across as happening on November the 7th. Are, have these already happened? Oh, no, you're right. I, my apologies, John. No, I had okay. my month wrong, yeah, because we're having our discussion in October. So thank you yeah. for pointing that out, because we're talking about the, the, the STEP program. That's we're right. talking about it a, a month before the webinar is coming out. And, you know, not to... You know, not to ruffle the feathers of some of my other regulatory friends, but there's a lot of people out there that are very good at doing webinars long after FDA has put out, you know, information. I like to talk about stuff when it's actually happening. Yeah. So, folks, we will provide you links to those upcoming webinars. The the one is on the Safer Technology Program draft guidance, and the other is, again, it's subtle, but it, there is a big difference. The other is about safety and performance-based pathway performance criteria. Those are happening no, uh, November 6th and November 7th. And by that time, Mike Drews will, will already have two, probably three step submissions uh, off to the FDA in some way, shape, or another. So so certainly if this is a program that you're interested in after you read the guidance document, uh, he's definitely a guy that you should reach out to. So, Mike. Well, I appreciate your optimism, John. Bottom line, the most important thing <laughs> for our audience to remember is if you have a device that you think is going to improve safety, not necessarily efficacy, but if it improves safety, then this is a program that you should definitely consider. That's the the intent of this particular program. All right. Well, that's a good bottom line and, and a good last word for this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Folks, you probably know by now, but um, even if you do, it's it's worth repeating. And if you don't, this will be news to you. And I encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru. Uh, there you can learn all about the Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform that was designed specifically for medical device and only for medical device industry. And it was actually designed by actual medical device professionals. Yeah, I've been in this industry for 21 years and our uh, we have another team of uh, gurus here who all have tons of industry experience and and uh, it's a really great award-winning platform that you should definitely check out. It's uh, helping companies with you know their compliance, the design and development process, but you know it's ensuring better traceability, uh, incorporating risk, uh, managing all aspects of your quality management system very seamlessly in one single source of truth. So be sure to go check out. Greenlight Guru EQMS platform at www.greenlight.guru. As always, uh, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.